So here we are. We're in, in this final study where we're going to look at uh, the fifth point or the fifth doctrine of grace. And we've been working through it. And as we've done that, we've not, we've referred to some of the, the nicknames or some of the names that's been called in history. We've looked at some of the things that um, we've defined it as or, or come to refer to them as these doctrines of grace, the Calvinism or Tulip. But over and over, I have come to you not to defend the acrostic or defend the title Calvinism. I, I have sought to get us to look at grace, God's grace. And so even in the titles of the sermons, I've been referring to his grace. That's the whole idea here. It, he, here's the thing. When we talk about salvation, we don't deny, no one should deny that we have a responsibility to respond to God. We have a responsibility to respond to the work that he's done in the world. But if all we ever look at from our perspective is our perspective, then it's, it's, it's as if, in some way, just imagine if God gave us the Bible and all we could ever discern from it was black leather. Like that's, that's our perspective, right? But it's not all he gave us. He gave us the words within it that have meaning and power. And so we don't have to live with just our understanding of our experience in salvation. We can actually, because God has given us a way, we can actually see what he has done in his powerful and in his sovereign work to give us grace, to give us what we don't deserve and what he wasn't obligated to give. And so that has been the focus, his grace. And, and, and we didn't start originally by looking at the grace itself, but we began by looking at the necessity of that grace. Why was grace Necessary, And we, this was the point. We believe that God's grace is necessary for salvation because the sinner is unable to come to Jesus on their own. Those were Jesus's words. No one can come unless the Father draws. No one can come unless the Father grants it. No one can see the kingdom unless he is born again. No one can enter the kingdom unless he is born again. This is what Jesus taught us that grace is necessary. We're absolutely needy. We, are, we, we have nothing to barter. We have nothing to exchange with him. We can't go and purchase it from him. This is the glorious grace of God being lavished upon us. This is his work, and it is more than sufficient. It is more than sufficient to, to save us throughout all eternity. Then we looked at, began to look at how that grace came to us. How did we... Of all the people in the world, how did we get to ex experience this grace? The Bible teaches of election, the electing grace, or, or God's grace that elects, you might say. We believe God has sovereignly and graciously elected every sinner who, give, who he gives to Jesus for their salvation. Before the foundation of the world, God chose to chose us and predestined us to be his. He chose us to be holy and blameless. He predestined us to be adopted as children, his sons. And so Jesus, as he was teaching about this, talked to his disciples, talked to his followers about who, who, who it is, the ones that God has given him. We didn't come to Jesus. In fact, we can't come unless we are given to Jesus. We, we have no ability unless God has first given us to him and everyone given to him, Jesus will not lose. That is the electing grace. God's atoning grace was the next stop in our study. 
We believe that Jesus' death atones for the sin of every person God sovereignly and graciously elects to save. If he has chosen us before the foundation of the world, he has ensured that the, the death of Jesus Christ has paid for your sin. If you are sitting here today following after, believing in, trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, before you believed in him, before you came to know him, he was choosing you and he was ensuring that the the death of Jesus Christ, the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross was paying for every last one of your sins. His work on the cross is sufficient to pay for every person's sin who has ever lived or ever will live, but it only actually atones for the sins of those who God has chosen to give to his son. The, the, the last one in this the last weeks that we looked at was regenerating grace. The, the regenerating grace of God. It's, it's all God's grace, but it's just applied to us in, in different ways. We experience it in different ways. First in election, then in atonement, then in regeneration. We believe that God graciously regenerates everyone. He chooses to save so that they can and will choose to trust Jesus and be Saved. This is where God's sovereign work meets man's response and the responsibility that man is responsible to respond. He gave us the power. He enabled us to do what we couldn't do. In fact, the passage we studied from last week in John chapter 3 speaks of us being born again. Until we are born again, we can't see the kingdom. Until we are born again, we, can't, we, we cannot um, enter the kingdom we must be born again. If we are going to believe in Jesus Christ, this was the point of the, the, the passage that we read from, John chapter 3, beginning in 1 all the way through uh, verse 21, I think is what it is. You can see and follow the flow. It is His giving us a spiritual birth, His regenerating us, Him giving us spiritual life that then able, enables us to do spiritual things. His work precedes our response. His Change in us gives us an ability we didn't have. God's grace gave us an ability that we never had before. It freed our will from our nature of sin so that we could and would choose to believe in Him. It is His sovereign work. Did you believe? Yes. Did you repent of your sins? Yes, if you're following Jesus, you did. If you are saved by Jesus Christ, you have. You have done those things things. But we did them by a power that didn't originate with us. We did them by his power at work in us. It's God's electing, atoning, and regenerating grace that has saved us. But not only has this grace saved us, it is this grace that will never fail us. It's by his grace we have been saved, and it's by his grace, his persevering grace, that we are also kept. All right, we're going to read about that. We're going to study that. We're going to see it, how it fits together with everything else. John chapter 10, verses 22 through 30. Follow along as I read. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. You're not among my sheep. 
My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And just before we pray, let me just add to what's about to happen. Verse 31 and 32, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Again, this isn't the first time. They're upset. Like they don't like what he just said. I've shown, and he says to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father for which of them are you going to stone me? Let's pray. Father, this is your word. This is your work. I, I can do nothing more than talk about it. I, I can get noise to the eardrums of the people in this room, but it is going to require, we need you to move upon us by the power of your spirit. We need you. Would you show us truth? Would you help us to believe the truth? And, and Father, for everyone that is, is yours, would you give us confidence, not in our response first and foremost, would you give us confidence in our response because we have confidence in your power and in your grace? Would you work today through your word? I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Now imagine you are yourself a shepherd. Like Jesus has, has been talking to these people about being a shepherd, being the good shepherd. Imagine you are yourself a shepherd. Imagine sitting down among your sheep to have a conversation with them and asking them to tell you how it is that, that you, their shepherd, keep them alive. I mean, what do you expect back from a bunch of sheep? A bunch of, I don't know, what do they call that? Bleeding. Bleat, bleating. Maybe, maybe they're going to look at you with that dead. Have you ever seen what sheep do? Like they stand around, they just got this dead stare, and they chew cud. If they're not eating, they, they're chewing cud. I mean, it just is a... What, what else would we expect? I mean, you sit down and you start to talk to these sheep, and what are they able to do? Why would, why would you expect them to be... A, no, no one would do that. I mean, it would be ludicrous if you walk out and you see... Yeah, I mean, well, let's just... Maybe, just maybe, some of you have pets at home that you talk to, and, and they understand you to a degree. I don't want to... I don't want to go... I don't want to step on any toes, but... But what do they really know? Like, they don't talk back to you, do they? Like, if you ask them, how is it that I provide for you? How is it that I work on your behalf? How is it that you're still alive today in my home? What would you expect from them? What, what, what answer would you expect them to give? They don't understand that. They can't see that. That's exactly where Jesus finds himself. He finds himself in a place here in John chapter 10 where he is telling these people what it is he's done for them. He is telling these people exactly how it is that he keeps his people alive. Exactly what he's come to do. Exactly what he's come to accomplish. And here they are. Hey, when are you going to speak plainly to us? When are you going to end the suspense? Like, what are you trying to build up here? When are you going to break the suspense? When you, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? Why don't you speak plainly? Are you the Christ? That's what they're asking, right? Are you the one that we're expecting? Now, now, just to put this in context of the rest of the Gospel of John, let me, let me end any idea that Jesus hasn't been speaking clearly enough. 
In John chapter 5, verse 5, chapter 5, verse 18, exactly, he says, it, it, it teaches us, it shows us that Jesus has been being so clear about who he is, about being the Son of God, the Jews are already trying to kill him, all the way back in John chapter 5. You can look that up. In John chapter 6, after he's fed the multitudes, they followed him overnight because they ate this miraculous meal. They follow him across the sea, and he finds them. And in chapter 6, verse 66, and in verse 68, the multitudes quit him. They quit following him. And you know why they quit following him? Because they don't like what he's teaching. His teaching is too hard. Who can can handle this? Who can accept this? In in John chapter 7, at one point in the the chapter 7, they are accusing him of being possessed by a demon. John chapter 7, verse 20. And in the next moment, John chapter 7, verse 25 through 27, they're questioning one another, is this really the Christ? Could he be the Christ? Could he be the one? In John chapter 8, they seek to stone him. You know why? Because he he speaks so clearly about who he is when he says, before Abraham was, I am. And they try to stone him in that moment because they knew what he was claiming. They knew he was making a divine claim. In John chapter 10, we've just read it just a second ago, right before we prayed. In response to this teaching, when he says, I and the Father are one, they're ready to stone him. When he claims to be the Son of God, they are ready to stone him. Not because of the works he does. In fact, you could read that as as the passage goes on. In fact, let me just read it. Verse 33. The Jews answered him, It's not for the good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, make yourself God. I don't think the problem is that Jesus isn't being clear. In fact, I don't think Jesus thinks the problem isn't is that he's not being clear enough. He's being very clear. They just continue to reject it. They continue to deny it. Jesus knew that the, they, they couldn't understand it. In fact, he addresses it. They, he, knew, he knew that they wouldn't believe him. In verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. Why do they not believe? You do not, verse 26, you do not believe... Because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. Something has to fundamentally change in these people. Something fundamentally about who they are has to change in these people. If they're going to be any more than like the real sheep that Jesus is talking to. If they are going to believe him. If they are going to follow them. Something has to change. They have to be his sheep. But they aren't. But, but that's not even, in my mind, the most beautiful point of this passage and the reason that we're studying it today. Because once they're his sheep, what does he say about them? No one can snatch them out of my hand. And by the way, my father who has given me my sheep. Every sheep that I have has been given to me by the Father. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. And He's more powerful than everybody. There's no one who has the ability to snatch them out of the Father's hand. We believe, this is the point that I think this passage shows us, we believe that everyone God chooses to save is preserved by His persevering grace so that none of His people will ever be lost. We believe 
that everyone God chooses to save is preserved by his persevering grace so that none of his people will be will ever be lost. Everyone God chooses to give to his son as one of his sheep will always be one of his sheep. No one can be taken from him. No one can take them from him. When we look at salvation purely from our perspective, and just consider it for a minute, when we look at salvation purely from our perspective and our response and, it, and, 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 and putting everything on us to do the things necessary and ignore or deny the sovereign work of God to do what He has promised to do, no wonder people think and are afraid of losing their salvation. No wonder there's no peace or assurance for the person who thinks it all rests on them. I mean, even in this passage, we can see the response expected from Jesus. We can see what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to hear his voice. Like we're supposed to hear and know it's him. What if I miss him? What if I don't recognize his voice and I get confused and think somebody else's voice? We're supposed to believe what he says. Well, what if I don't believe enough? What if my faith is too weak? We're supposed to follow him. What about all those days I don't follow him? Is there anyone who follows him every second of every day? There's none of us that stray, none of us that wander off looking for a little greener grass. I mean, if, if, if all we can see is what we're supposed to be doing in response to God, no wonder there's so much angst and so much anxiety and so, much, so, 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 so great a lacking of peace. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't just tell us about what we were going to be doing. He told us what he would be doing. He told us what he would make possible. He does talk about what his people will do, but these are always simply a response to what he's already been doing. These are simply responses of who these people are and have been made to be. Notice all the things that his sheep are supposed to be doing, they do because they have been given to him as, their, as his sheep. He, he received them from the Father. The Father gave them to the Son and that's the source of faith. That's the source of hearing and knowing his voice. That's the source of, of being able to follow him. And it's him. It's him and his father who keep us saved. We believe what he says. We, we, we believe what he says. We hear his voice when he speaks to us. Because of who he is and who we have been made to be. We follow him. Because he's the one leading because of who he is, we follow him. Because of what he has done in us, we follow him. The, 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 or the, the point of this passage, the pressure of this passage is not on his sheep. It's on him as the shepherd to ensure his sheep are never lost. Why would we pick up a weight that then is impossible for us to carry? I don't really know how to answer that question because... Well, we, we continue to do it. Sometimes I don't really know why. Do we have some responsibility? Absolutely. 
Do God's people stand responsible to obey him? Let me just use this as an illustration. Billy reads 1 Peter, and he calls us. In that prayer, Peter calls us. uh, Not in that prayer. In that passage, Peter calls us to, the, the end of all things is near. Love one another. Be hospitable without grumbling. Serve one another. If you have the gift to speak, you speak as if you're speaking the oracles of God. If you have been given the gift to serve, then you serve as if with God's power. Those clearly are responsibility for God's people. We talk about that all the time. But we don't come to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 10 until we've read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through about 11. You are being saved by the power of God. You are, your, your hope in heaven is being guarded through faith by God's power. That, that's the work that happens that enables us to do what we've been called to do. God's persevering grace, His persevering grace preserves God's people eternally. His grace doesn't just save us for a moment. Jesus said He is saving us forever. No one can snatch them out of my hand, He says. He will give us eternal life. He says that they will never perish. Let's just walk through those three things that He tells us in this passage. He says He's giving us. He will give us eternal life. Eternal means without end. Never ceasing, perpetual, ongoing, without a stopping point. It never stops. Life starts and never stops. They will never perish, he says. It means that there's not a time in all of our existence that we will ever come to a point where we are destroyed. Once we've been made to live, we will always live. There is no perishing after that. No one, he says, can snatch us away. No one can. This is the same language... That Jesus has been using, saying that no one can come to the Father. No one can come to me. I'm sorry. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. No one has power. No one can see the kingdom unless born again. No one has power. No one can. No one has ability. And in the same way, no one can take us out of the Father's hand. No one has the power, no one has the ability to snatch us away from God. No one. God saves us and God keeps us saved. We may be responsible to persevere in salvation, and we are. But we are made able to do that as He has called us to do it by His persevering Grace. We are made able to persevere because His grace perseveres alongside us. Every day that we live from here on out is a gift of God's grace. His grace is as powerful in your life, keeping you His, keeping you safe today as it was the day that your eyes were opened and you saw His glory and wanted nothing more than to trust in Him. It is not because suddenly you decided I need to start going to church regularly and now these good works or I I need to pray regularly. I need to study my Bible more. I got all these good religious things that I do. Those are good things. But they are not the things that save you, nor are they the things that keep you safe. They, they They are the expressions of God's persevering grace keeping you His just see this. I want you to see this. This isn't just a a, a snapshot. It's not just a a snippet and, oh, well, this is one place. I mean, Jesus talked about the gospel and salvation a lot. And we've looked at a lot of passages. Let's just look at those other passages. Go flip over in your Bible back to John chapter 3. 
In John chapter 3, Jesus, we've studied this uh, last week. Nicodemus comes to him and, and, and wants to know, you know, it starts talking to him. And, and Jesus says to him, no one can see the kingdom unless he's born again. Nicodemus doesn't understand. Jesus says, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, unless he's been given a new heart, that's a reference to the Old Testament. Unless one's been given a new heart, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit. We must be born spiritually. We must have this new life within us. We must have this spiritual regeneration to take place. If we're ever going to believe, if you kind of walk through that passage, you'll see Nicodemus can't believe because... He can't understand anything but physical things because he's flesh. Nicodemus can't understand. He can't fathom it. He can't grasp it. And Jesus confronts him on it. He says, you can't understand because you, you're flesh. And Jesus comes to the place in John chapter 3, verse 16, where he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3, 16, if pulled out of its context, can suddenly mean can suddenly mean that it's possible for anyone to enter the kingdom of his own free will. But in the context, we can see that this is the, the, those who come to him will come to him because they have been born again. Everyone who comes, every recipient of God's regenerating grace, let me say it like this, this is the point. Every recipient of God's regenerating grace is born to eternal life. A life that never stops being life. A life that never stops. Uh, they should not perish. When we come to Christ, after having been born again, when we approach Christ in faith, having been born again, we will not perish. We will never be destroyed and we will never cease to live. Even when we die, he tells us we will live. Let every recipient of God's, every recipient of God's electing grace is raised to eternal life. Flip over to John chapter 6. We studied this a couple of weeks ago. We've been in and out of John chapter 6 all the way through this. When you get to John chapter 6, look at verses 35 through 40. They, they are on the screen for you. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's talking about complete and total satisfaction. You come to Jesus, you approach Jesus, you find absolute, complete, 100% satisfaction. It's the only place in this whole life of ours that we will ever find this is in Christ. But I said to you, you come to me and you find satisfaction. But I said to you that you have, ne- you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father has chosen to give me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I'll never send them away. I'll never throw them aside. No, no matter how bad they fail, no matter how imperfect they are, no matter, no matter what they deserve from me, I will never cast them out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. This is Jesus' promise to everyone who comes to Him, to everyone who has been given to Him by the Father's electing grace. Everyone who comes, I will raise Him up. This Every recipient of God's electing grace is raised to eternal life. 
Everyone who who has been given to Jesus by the Father. Here's the thing. If we've decided, if we've determined that we are powerful enough, that we are capable enough, that we can do whatever we want to do, and we can, we can determine that having been saved and having truly been born again and having been elected by God from before the foundation of the world, that we can step out and walk away from Jesus and think that His power isn't enough to keep us, then basically what we're suggesting is that in this passage, Jesus is lying. Is He able to keep His people? Is He able to raise up His people? Is He able to ensure that His people receive eternal life? Absolutely. If we say no, then we're suggesting that he's not telling the truth here. And let me just say that, just to push on that just a little bit. If we're saying he's not telling the truth here, then he's not believable anywhere. Why would you be trusting him for your salvation to begin with? Every recipient of God's... uh, Regenerating grace is born to eternal life. Every recipient of God's electing grace is raised to eternal life. Every recipient of God's atoning grace is given eternal life. John 10, here's the passage we're in. Jesus is speaking to the people in the temple. And he's saying to them, hey, listen. Let me just read it instead of summarizing. John 10, 10 through 11. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. If Jesus Christ has laid his life down for you as his sheep, as one of his sheep, then you can be certain of this, that the same thing, the same promises that he is applying out of the the shepherd passage about abundant life, the same promises are, are applied to the same people. Just a little bit further in John chapter 10, when he's talking to the same group of people around the temple, and he says to them, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, I give them eternal life, they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. By the way, my father, who is more powerful than anyone else, No one is able, no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. God's electing, atoning, and regenerating grace preserves us. It never runs out. Brothers and sisters, as you follow Jesus Christ in this life, you will find that you are a much greater sinner than you first realized. But you will find His grace is greater than that. His grace goes further than that. His grace is bigger than your sin. You cannot outsin His grace. You can't come to a place where you have run to the end of it. His persevering grace is always with us. That well will never run dry. It's this grace then. That preserves us. It's this grace that gives us the assurance of our salvation. But let's not miss this. It's this grace also that makes us able to do what we've been called to do. God's persevering grace empowers, empowers, uh, sorry, God's persevering grace empowers the perseverance of God's people. Well, that's a piece. God's persevering grace empowers the perseverance of God's people. He's the one that makes us, by His grace, able to do the very things He's called us to do. Well, let's just look at it in this passage. We've already talked about it. We've already dealt with it, but let's just see it 
again. I told you, and you do not believe me. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe. Their lack of belief, though, he conditions it on something other than just their free will and their decision to believe or not believe. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My father, verse 29, my father who has given them to me, given who to me? My sheep. This, we can't pull these things out of context. We can't decide that, that God is giving him some group of people other than his sheep. You're not among my sheep. You're not among the ones that God has given to me. And so because you're not among the ones that God has given to me, you can't believe. Not only do you not, you will not. I can talk to you till you're blue in the face or till I'm blue in the face. But if you're not one of my sheep, he says, it's as if you're really sheep and I'm talking to sheep. But, but for those that are his sheep, we do hear his voice. We do believe in him. We do follow him. There's God's persevering grace that empowers his people to persevere in his grace. It's God's persevering grace that does this work in us. His persevering grace empowers our profession of faith and our daily living in faith. It's His work, it's His grace in us that enables us to profess faith in the first place and to live daily in that faith. Every genuine profession of faith, every genuine profession of faith is a result of God's grace. And every genuine profession of faith will be followed by a life, even if imperfectly, lived in that faith. It may be a weak faith. It may be an imperfect faith. It may be a faith plagued with doubt at times. But it is a faith that will continue. What then about those who don't? Here's a th- I don't. I don't want to take away any assurance that you have in your own salvation or the salvation of your kids or anyone in your family. Don't, don't hear me trying to do that. But let's be real. Let's be honest. We get really excited at the moment a person professes faith, right? But how do we know that that faith has really is really a saving faith? Time tells. In fact, I can't remember what preacher it was. It was some some preacher that like an evangelist type preacher that was going out and and preaching in fields and open air preaching. I think it was Whitfield. I, I can't remember exactly. But someone came to him after a meeting, after a number of people had made these professions of faith. And they're like, how, how many people do you think that was that got saved? And his answer was, uh, I guess we'll know in about six months. We're, we're so quick to, to, to get excited about that moment of profession of faith. And, and, and please do. Please get excited about it. Celebrate the the hope of life. Celebrate the fact that someone's heard the gospel and and is responding to the gospel. But if that person has truly been born again, if that person has really received the electing, atoning, regenerating, uh, persevering grace of God, that person won't just believe once. They will believe always. Even if 
imperfectly, even if weekly. Not, not, not weekly like calendar, in a weak way. See, the beauty of our faith is not that it's strong because we express it. The beauty of our faith is it's strong because it's made strong by our Savior. He's the one that keeps us. He's the one that no one can snatch us from. He's the one that protects us every day. God's persevering grace empowers our profession of and daily living in faith. What about the ones who don't? Well, there's all kind of passages I could refer to. There's people that I could refer to. Judas. Man, by all appearances, everybody would have assumed Judas was a believer. Would have believed, would have thought Jesus, Judas was one uh, of Jesus' people. And Jesus always knew. He predicted Judas, he predicted the betrayal. And then he called out Judas and identified Judas on the night of his arrest. He says, go do what you got to do. Do it quickly. And Judas shows his true colors. And Judas was trusted. Judas had the bag like he had the bag of money. He was watching over the stuff. He'd, when, when the 12 were sent out, Judas was among them. When they're all out there casting out demons and doing miracles in Jesus' name, Judas is right there with them. By all outward appearance, Judas was a believer. Judas was a follower of Jesus. What happens in a life like that? Did, did Jesus fail? No. Judas never was really a follower of Jesus. Judas was in it for himself. And Peter, Peter, another of Jesus' twelve, another one that was really close to Jesus, Jesus says to him, hey, you're going to deny me. And Jesus, Peter's like, come on, I would die before I'd deny you. You ever, you ever got that proud and arrogant about your faith? I would die before I denied. There's no way I would deny you. No way in the world. Oh, yeah? Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. And what did he do? He denied him three times. But here's what Jesus tells him. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 32. This is not on the screen. Let me just read it to you. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. You think about that. Satan, chief demon, most powerful demon, demanded to have you. That he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you. That your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter didn't remain in the faith because Peter was strong enough to remain in the faith. Peter remained in the faith because Jesus was keeping him in the faith. Jesus knew Peter was going to deny him. Jesus knew that Peter wasn't strong enough. Jesus knew that he was so weak that in the face of confrontation, Peter was going to fall away as, if, as it were. And in that moment, you'd think, oh, there's no way Peter's a follower. Look at that life. But what happens? When you turn, when you turn, Jesus knew that, G, that, that Peter would repent. Jesus knew that Peter wouldn't finally and fully fall, that he would be coming back. Because Jesus was keeping Peter saved. The four, the four soils, another passage you could point to. There's, there's one soil where the seed is taken away. Jesus says there's, there's no response at all. The seed is taken away from that hardened soil and, and, and there's no response. Then there's two soils in which there is an, a, 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 an, an immediate response and it looks good and everything seems good. 
But when the worries of life, the pressures of life, the difficulties of life, when, when all these anxieties weigh down on this person, they fade and shrivel and die. And then there's the fruit or the seed that falls on good soil that produces a crop that produces fruit that shows this person to be living and and, and kept by God in faith. God's persevering grace empowers our profession of faith and our daily living in faith. God's persevering grace empowers our pursuit of obedience. It's very similar to the last one. Like Peter, we may fall into sin. Like, like Peter, we may stumble and fall. It doesn't, just because we say that we are saved and kept safe by God's grace doesn't mean that we don't still struggle with sin. In fact, the book of Ephesians is written to people who have been saved by God's grace. The first three chapters are all about the saving grace of God and how he has delivered his people from death to life. How he is uniting his people as one people. And the second half of the book of Ephesians is, is three chapters of commands of this is how you live, this is how you live, this is how you live, this is how you live. But every one of those commands, and I've, I've appreciated walking through this with a number of you as, as a discipleship component, as a, as a pastoral counseling tool. I've appreciated walking through it with a number of you because what I've found is every one of these commands is rooted back in the grace that first was preached. There's nothing he calls us to do that that we can't find rooted in and empowered by the grace that God has already given us. This is the reality of it. What about it when, when someone sins egregiously, like someone sins seriously? Well, Jesus has given us a process for that. We've been baptizing a lot of people here recently, and, and, and since really since the beginning of the new year, we've baptized nearly weekly, um, not every week, but nearly weekly, we have baptized someone. And we love to say, oh, that baptism, that means, oh, that means they're saved, and they're not, not anything to worry about ever again. But, but that baptism, what that baptism really shows us is that this person has come public, has, has stepped out so that the world can see them and say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And I want to be discipled, and I want to be disciplined as one of his sheep, as one of his people. I want to walk in this way. And so he gives us a process by which he says, discipline one another, strengthen one another, as he says it to Peter, strengthen your brothers. And when we go to, we'll go to one another, when we see one another in sin, when we, when we recognize a, a pattern of sin in one another's life, what does he tell us to do? Go and confront the brother. Talk to him. Call him to Repentance. And if he doesn't repent, what's he supposed to do? Bring somebody with him next time. Bring a couple. Bring some witnesses. And, and, and love the brother enough to, to go to him and say, Hey, repent. Repent of your sin. Turn back. And if he doesn't, what are they supposed to do? Go to the whole church. Love the brother enough. Repent. Repent. At any moment, if the brother repents, discipline stops and discipleship continues. Jesus knows what he's doing. He's giving us an, an ability to walk in this and, and to call one another to faith and repentance, knowing that Jesus keeps his own saved. We, we don't deny the importance of our obedience, but we recognize that we are made able to continue in obedience because Jesus Christ in his grace is never insufficient for us. It never ends. It continues on. It perseveres our whole life. Even when we see someone in serious sin, like in 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul says, kick that brother out, remove fellowship from him. 
What's the attitude that he tells them to do it in? One of hope of restoration. We have the hope of restoration because we can't see into the person's heart. We can't see if grace has really made this person alive. But we can be certain. If they have been made alive, there will be a point where they will return. If they have truly been born again, they will never finally and fully fall away. And we can speak truth to one another. We can call one another to live in the way that God has called us to. We can pursue obedience together because God's grace never fails. Finally, God's persevering grace empowers our endurance in suffering and spiritual warfare. It's so easy when things get tough to begin to think that in some way God has left us. I, I, I sit with, I have sat with, I have had the privilege of sitting with a number of people as they have dealt with some of the hardest days of their life. And they, they ask questions. So what, what did I do to make God so angry with me? Where is God in this? I thought the Christian life was supposed to be filled with joy and goodness. And why am I hurting so deeply? Brothers and sisters, it's in the midst of the depths of suffering that we find his grace most beautiful. He, he, he has never. He has never commanded that you live and breathe and survive and endure according to your own power. He has always said, listen to me, come to me. Come to me and find rest. Come to me and know the power of God. Come to me, he says. It's his persevering grace that empowers us to endure in suffering and spiritual warfare. I referenced Ephesians just a minute ago where where Paul opens with the gospel. The first three chapters of the gospel. Or the first three chapters are nothing but gospel grace. The second three chapters are, are, are instruction on how to live in this grace. What to do now that we are experiencing God's grace. And in the final chapter, or in the final paragraph, he reminds us we are in the midst of a spiritual war. And to put on the whole armor of God, the whole armor, not just a piece of it, the whole armor. And every piece of the armor, he roots back into the gift of God's grace that's been given us. The breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of truth, the shoes of the gospel. All of these are God's grace. You you, you and I can stand in the midst of the day of spiritual warfare because we have the gospel about us. The shield of faith, the sword of the spirit. These are God's gift of God's grace so that we can stand. He empowers us for this. Like sheep, we're so quick to wander off and eat from fields of other shepherds thinking that in some way that's going to be a good one. That, That grass is a little bit greener. Just listen to the words of your shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. He says that with confidence. I know them. There's not a moment of your life, not a second of your day, that he doesn't see you and know you. 
I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one, no one, no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. He has you. He's got you. Trust him. Follow him. Listen to him. Hear him. He is by him and in him and for him. It is his grace that's washing over us every day. 